Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Lisa Rofel, Professor of... I've messed that up. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to start again. Rofel, did I I get that right? Rofel, okay. I'll start again. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Lisa Rofel, Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Cruz. But perhaps in a bit of a departure for the pattern that we follow on a lot of these podcasts, Professor Rofel will be talking about a recent book, which she edits and introduces, but which is actually a collection of essays by the Chinese cultural critic and professor of Chinese literature and language at Peking University, Dai Jinhua, which is entitled After the Post-Cold War, The Future of Chinese History. And this was published in 2018 by Duke University Press. Dai Jinhua may not be all that well known to English-speaking audiences, but as Lisa Rofold points out in her editor's introduction to After the Post-Cold War, Dai's incisive commentaries and critiques of contemporary Chinese life have elevated her to something akin to rock star status in China itself. China's rise and its growing global presence in almost all spheres of life receives no shortage of attention from the perspective of politics, economics, science and culture. But while reporting and academic writing on all these areas describes uh, events of truly historic magnitude, the consequences for history itself in China and indeed worldwide are quite often overlooked. Within China, a place where it's probably not too essentialist to point out history matters a great deal, the country's dazzling recent transformations raise important questions. What's the future history that is currently being written in China? Who are its protagonists? And are any alternative historical courses conceivable? and how a recent and more distant pasts invoked or ignored in conversations about these. Based on close observation and contextualization of recent Chinese film and other cultural works, Dai offers answers to these and many other questions. This collection of piercingly insightful essays, translated by a fantastic array of experts in the field, seems especially urgent in this year of key anniversaries, from May the 4th to Tiananmen, not just for understanding China in the era of Xi Jinping and his historical nihilism, or attacks on historical nihilism, I should say, but for apprehending the entire contemporary global moment, as Lisa Rofel puts it. With history in China today at once a battleground and also, as Dai Jinhua shows, an enormously and perilously vacuous space, the critique presented in this book is vital in showing us how, and Dai Jinhua puts it beautifully here, China must be a China of the future, or there will be no future. But to discuss all this and more, uh, I'll say, Lisa Rafael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Well, thank you very much for for appearing and agreeing to uh, introduce us to this, I think, uh, very important book and 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 an incredibly important thinker. Um, But perhaps I could begin by asking you about your own sort of trajectory towards Dai's work um, and how you became acquainted with her. Uh, I actually have known Dai Jinhua since 1993. Uh, sh- uh, she came to the United States then to do a series of talks, and I happened to be part of a uh, semester-long seminar um, 
at the University of California on the Irvine campus, um, she came at a seminar on uh, East Asia, and she came and uh, talked with us. And um, we immediately clicked. She was at that point um, a kind of rising star already of uh, feminist theory. And so we, we, we had long discussions about women in China on that visit. And then um, after that, we just uh, kept uh, in contact. And then um, every time I would go to China, we would get together and talk. And she's, I could listen to her talk for hours. And she is very eloquent. At, you know, the way she writes in these chapters is almost, not quite, but almost the way she speaks in just regular conversation. And uh, so I learn an enormous amount from her every time I go of her incredibly insightful, creative, original um, analyses of what's going on in contemporary China. She's just unparalleled as uh, a, a thinker, critic, theorist. And um, so I, I, I always get together with her. I then did translate one essay. There was a previous uh, translation about 12 years ago of her essays into English, Cinema and Desire, and I translated one of those essays. So um, that also then became another occasion. And and we um, thought up this book together because she had a number of essays that she was writing that uh, appeared to uh, work well together. So we decided together that we would um, make this book happen. Got it. Got it. I thought that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, certainly, I think, uh, comes out in the book that this is this is based on uh, a long familiarity in, in uh, the way that you introduce and present it. Um, I think uh, it's a great expression of that. Um, what about the actual kind of bringing together of, of everyone who worked together on the book? Uh, as I mentioned, there are quite a lot of different uh, translators for the various essays, but all of whom in their own rights are exceptional scholars of China. Um, how did the kind of project uh, get brought together once you'd, once you'd conceived of it? Well, uh, to be honest, I, um, what is that phrase in the famous movie, uh, depended on the kindness of friends. <laughs> um, I pulled in uh, personal networks of people who I knew were completely, either if they were based in the U.S., completely fluent in Chinese, um, or if they were not, not just fluent in Chinese, I should say, but understood this kind of theoretical language. Dai Jinhua is very difficult to translate. In fact, one of the translators, um, uh, Ya Jun, Mo Ya Jun, uh, who is originally from China and uh, did her PhD in the United States and now teaches in the United States, she gave this very funny paper. We did a panel on this book at the most recent Association for Asian Studies. And Ya Jun talked about um, how frustratingly difficult it is to translate Dai Jinhua. <laughs> and I thought that was a quite a humorous paper because one would expect someone whose you know first language is Chinese would not have a difficult time. But the truth of the matter is, you need for this kind of translation work, you need a kind of combination of um, you know a kind of uh, wide familiarity with a broad range of academic work, um, and especially, of course, the kind of work that. Um, inspires Dai Jinhua. And, um, and then she herself, as you know, all languages, uh, you're a linguist, all languages are continually inventing new terms 
for new historical moments for transformations. And Daijinghua is one of the people inventing those terms. So you have to check in with her about exactly what she means. So so I, I pulled on people, as I say, I knew who are some senior people who are just the Chinese, their, their comprehension of China, especially at this level is superb. And then there were a number of, at that time, PhD students who were fully bilingual, but who were from China. Uh, so there were a, a number of those also. So they, um, so it was that kind of combined group. And I can't thank them enough. Yeah, I can't thank them enough. It was uh, really uh, challenging, and I hope for them rewarding work. Yeah, well, I think that they've done a tremendous job because it, it's it, it's exceptionally lucid and and, and flows very well, uh, despite uh, as you mentioned being concerned with some pretty uh, weighty and, and, and uh, detailed concepts. Uh, but we'll perhaps uh, jump into what some of those concepts are uh, as we move on now into the uh, kind of body of the book. Um, so you provide a, an editor's introduction to start us off, uh, which gives us a bit of a picture of Dai's stature and, and her uh, and her biography. Um, but could you fill this out for us a bit uh, in terms of um, what her background is, what her how her theoretical apparatus and thematic concerns operate as a scholar, and and what her stature is really uh, in in China. Um, well, maybe I should start with her stature because she's actually quite uh, famous in China. And um, again, when we did this panel at the Association for Asian Studies, uh, you know, just numerous students kept running up to her. Say, especially students from China saying, oh, I'm so thrilled to meet you and I've already got your book and because it was uh, just for the first time being presented there, actually. And um, you can really see how these students from China just, um, they look to her for insights about how to think about, well, their own lives for one thing and then, of course, what's going on today in China for another. And so she uh, she used to be a regular person. I mean, unlike the United States, um, where I'm located, uh, in China, as in many places in Europe, you know, intellectuals actually become kind of well-known television personalities sometimes. And um, that would be very peculiar in the United States. But um, so she was doing for quite some time these programs where she would be a commentator. She stopped, but... Um, you know, I think, uh, and of course she teaches at um, Peking University, Beijing University, which is, of course, the um, one of the top, you could say the top university in China. So people look to those people who are uh, intellectuals and um, teachers there. So she's extremely well known. And uh, Dai Jinghua came of age, really, I should say, in the Cultural Revolution. And she is deeply formed by both the inspirations from the socialist era as well as its degradations. And uh, she um, then was part of that very, very selective group who managed to get into college right after the Cultural Revolution because, of course, the universities had been closed initially and then for some time they were uh, only letting in a few kind of students from peasant and worker backgrounds. And uh, Dai Jinghua is n n not from that background, although she's not from a pre-revolution elite family either. But um, I understand her father f was a um, uh, an important um, uh, party official um, as part of the government. But she 
uh, was part of that 1978 class, 77 and 78, you know, students who had not been able to go to college for almost 10 years. There was just an enormous number of them who applied and very, very few got accepted. And Dai was uh, one of those students who uh, did get accepted. Um, so, yes, that's already an indication of her, let's call it, brilliance. I mean, she's really quite an original, you know, I, I don't really believe in some ways in an original, but she really is. I mean, she's just, just, um, uh, just really an incredibly original thinker. And, uh, so she, she went through university at Beijing university and then, um, she was assigned in those days, people were assigned jobs and she was assigned to the Beijing film Institute to teach. And so they didn't, uh, she does not make films, but she, so she, there was nothing there on film theory and she was supposed to teach it. So she basically developed their whole film theory specialization at the Beijing Film Institute. And then she um, managed to transfer over to Beijing University where uh, she created the Institute for Film and Cultural Studies. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and I should say from that background of coming of age in the Cultural Revolution and then living through all these enormous transformations in China, uh, she's quite disturbed by some of the um, effects of those transformations, especially uh, inequality, uh, you know, the incredible um, divergence now between the wealthy and the poor, uh, and um yeah, so that that disturbs her a great deal. And while she's not someone who wants to return to socialism, at least not in its form that it was, she does want to hold on to the ideals and the um, search for a better world, a more just world. And that inspiration that she grew up with still stays with her, and that motivates her concern with the issues of history and memory, which are the I would say the key terms, keywords of this book. Right. Yeah. No. I think that that is the, the tremendous value in what she's putting across. In a way, it's 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 retrieving or recovering something of the erasures of that socialist period that seem to be present in the way that history is looked at today in China. Whilst, of course, not you know uh, <laughs> justifying or or apologizing, as you put it, the, the degradations of that. That era. I mean, that, that's trying to uh, salvage something from that period. Um, but I, I wonder. You, you mentioned uh, in your account of how you first became acquainted um, that it was through feminist scholarship and her early work, which I guess was considered feminist work, um, uh, that, that you kind of got to know her. Um, and uh, in addition to some of this other biography that you've just outlined, this comes out in uh, a really useful um, kind of uh, appendix or a. a a kind of postscript you you have uh, in the book about it's an interview with her where she talks about her biography a little more but in that she talks about um uh, the sort of uh, her efforts to disambiguate if you like uh, her kind of feminist stance or what has been seen as her feminist stance particularly distinguishing between new xing zhui a kind of fem feminist or female consciousness um versus new chen zhui maybe a more uh, Western style uh, feminism. Um, is she a feminist scholar? Would you describe her in this way? And, and how does that um, angle continue to play a role in her work? 
Yes, the uh, I definitely think she's a feminist scholar, and and you'll hear more explicitly why when we get to talking about her current project. Her new, let's call it her new project, because Dai Jinghua never rests. She's a restless <laughs> intellectual that's always motivated to comment on uh, contemporary uh, uh, cultural life in China. But um, I think uh, three things really. The Nu Xing Zhui. Uh, the reason she wants to distinguish that from Nu Quan Zhui is that the latter Nu Quan Zhui is uh, about rights, women's rights, and as she says uh, in that short interview I, I did with her, um, women ha- have legal rights in China. That's not the issue, you know. Again, unlike the United States, where we've never even had an equal rights amendment be able to pass. Um, into law, uh, China does at least technically have an equal rights, you know, legislation and uh, so on. But on the other hand, um, at least in the early 80s, after the Cultural Revolution uh, and the beginning of um, all of this tremendous transformation, um, she felt like um, the issue of consciousness, of ideology, of beliefs about gender were uh, not being addressed. And um, so she really wanted to concentrate on uh, what people think a woman is supposed to be and those kinds of questions. And particularly because she in her own life felt like she didn't fit into the norm. And uh, people were always commenting on her height, which I always find fascinating, like she's too tall for a proper woman, etc., and um, so that that's one thing that she wanted to focus really on this kind of consciousness issue. Um, and then, secondly, uh, as these transformations proceeded, she also felt a little disenchanted with women's studies programs because they were mostly focusing on urban, middle class, professional women, and what were the roadblocks in their lives. But Dai Jinghua being very concerned, as I said before, with social inequality and some of the more disturbing aspects of these transformations was more concerned with what was happening with women workers, women in rural areas, um, people who were not benefiting from these transformations at all. And so um, that's what led her to th- sort of combine kind of class and gender. She she did not want to lose sight of these issues of uh, inequality. Mm. And, and in a sense, I suppose it's those issues, uh, well, which, as you mentioned, are at the heart of her concerns over the contemporary moment. Um, in light of that, perhaps I could also just ask about the, t- the title of the book, if you like. You know, now we've got a sense of how Dai um, came to uh, some of these views about what's going on at present. Um, what is this post-Cold War or, or Post post Cold War era uh, that we've moved into, um, that this is, seems to be the key uh, kind of uh, temporal framing of, of where we're at. I think I, I, I'm fully in sympathy with it. But could you give us a bit of a picture of what, uh, yeah, what 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 is the post post Cold War, or what happens after the post Cold War? Uh, what does this? What does this? What does the title mean? <laughs> um, uh, she has several meanings to that uh, title. One is. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, uh, there was a lot of language about, um, you know, the end of history and uh, the United States being the sole victor, and um, and then the 
most importantly, the uh, division between uh, socialist countries and capitalist countries is over. And um, so that she would be characterized as the immediate post-Cold War period. What she's calling the after the post-Cold War or the post-post-Cold War is that even the Cold War has now been forgotten uh, with this n newer era of neoliberal globalization uh, that she feels like China has jumped into. And so that gets to the second meaning, which is, in fact, we're still dealing with some of the after effects of the Cold War, but our memories and the history of the Cold War has been set aside, most especially China's role as a kind of third path between the binaries of the Soviet Union and the U.S. And that that effort of China to try to provide an alternative path during that period uh, for third world and non-aligned countries is, is that is what has been forgotten. And um, that's why she's calling it after the post-Cold War to highlight, again, back to the sort of main keywords of the book, uh, history and memory, how much of history is being erased in this neoliberal globalized era. Right, right. Well, that moves us pretty neatly into uh, the, the the sort of uh, first part of the book, I think. And I should say that the um, uh, book divides it's, it's divided into three main sort of thematic parts. Um, so uh, we'll go on with that. I, I, I think um, in this first uh, part and in the introduction, which Dai herself uh, sets or uses to set up the kind of thematic concerns of the book. Um, she talks about the way that, yeah, as you say, essentially with alternative paths having disappeared, um, China has entered a kind of uh, a time frame that's very in, in sync with the, the capitalist or neoliberal West and the, uh, the distinct 20th century experience has disappeared, she, she says, without a trace in a sense. Um, you say as well in your introduction that uh, one of the issues that this brings up is that the West or or a kind of neoliberal, quote unquote, modern world is already embedded in China uh, and in all of its sort of thoughts about its own place in, in time and, and its future. Um, could you could you expand on that? Or could you could you say something about what the sort of, the, yeah, the consequences for history of, of this sort of move into the post post Cold War era uh, have for China? Uh well, for Dai Jinghua, the 20th century represented a long, uh, difficult search for a true alternative to the colonial West and its uh, capitalist ventures or adventures. And she wants to hold on to that search. Again, it's not that she uh, wants to hold on to some congealed notion of a heroic past of the socialist era, but she does think that uh, what has been evacuated is uh, a memory and a historical writing of that search for a true alternative. And it's that search that she wants to hold on to, because as the subtitle of the book says, The Future of Chinese History, uh, Dai Jinghua believes that if we don't search for a better alternative, we're not going to have any future. And so she wants a different kind of history to be written uh, about the 20th century than it, 
what is being written, so to speak, through these film texts that she focuses on, but she places each of these films within a larger sort of uh, public discourse about the past. And uh, she sees total erasure. People do not want to talk about or are not talking about, I mean, everything from official histories to popular histories are not talking about this search. And so it naturalizes the current moment that this is where uh, they're either evac what she calls evacuated memories or uh, the revisionist histories. That's they lead up to a kind of a naturalization of the moment that we're living in, and that disturbs her a lot. Right, and that uh, that idea of evacuated memories is present there in the the title of part one: uh, trauma, evacuated memories, and inverted histories. Um, and in the two chapters of this part, uh, she treats uh, two different films primarily. Um, first of which is uh, City of Life and Death, or Nanjing Nanjing, uh, directed by Lu Chuan, and then also Hero the a uh, very well-known Zhang Yimou uh, film uh, about the first emperor, first Qin emperor. Um, how does she use these uh, two film texts to uh, d- debate or to bring out these ideas of um, evacuated memories and, uh, well, and, and uh, the, the, the ways uh, that history and versions of history are being erased uh, in contemporary Chinese historical narratives? Uh, with the first uh, one, the um, Nanjing Nanjing, City of Life and Death, uh, she's arguing very, uh, very incisively that the Nanjing massacre uh, committed by the Japanese army during the Japanese colonial um, occupation of China uh, before and during World War II um, or what they call the anti-Japanese war in China. Um, uh, this film completely rewrites that history, but she starts out uh, pointing out that this Nanjing massacre is still an unresolved trauma for people in China. That's a very, very important point in this essay, that this unresolved trauma leads to a kind of a displacement of um, uh, Chinese people's sense of themselves that they cannot have a sense of closure around that event because it's uh, difficult and it has been throughout since that time difficult to address the trauma that is of, of that massacre for, for different reasons, but most recently because the Chinese government is trying to reposition itself in East Asia. And um, so although the government does criticize, the Chinese government criticizes the Japanese government about World War II and its lack of account- uh, sense of accountability about World War II, um, nonetheless, the Chinese government also does not want uh, uh, this kind of thing brought up again. So that's one thing. But also uh, because she argues that the Nanjing massacre um, uh, did not make the status of, let's say, the Holocaust. Uh, it's not kind of, it, there's no international push, uh, not a strong one anyway, to address it. In this essay, therefore, on Nanjing Nanjing, she argues that the director, uh, Lu Chuan, um, rewrites that history 
um, because one effect of having this open trauma is it raises the question of what get what what gets to count as a proper human being, what kind of person gets to count as a proper human being. And um, the proper human being, or let's say the human, Dai uh, argues in a very uh, incisive way that there's always been this uh, tension of, on the one hand, trying to produce a socialist human being uh, in the 20th century China, and on the other hand, the, the human being... Uh, associated with a universal kind of person, which uh, indirectly is always associated with the West and its enlightenment history. And in this film, uh, the film tends towards the universal enlightenment version and very paradoxically and perversely, one might even say, the Japanese soldier turns out to be the most human person in the film, whereas the Chinese, once again, she argues, get treated as passive bystanders, the uh, bystanders in this history. And so that's well, the first... The, the protagonist mm. of the film is, is a Japanese soldier, correct? Is the, the actual kind of main character that's focused on is is there and uh it, it seems and it's, it's striking as well the way she uh, outlines the uh, fact that this film re received enormous... Um, official backing and, and was, you know, promoted as a sort of uh, a particularly uh, important film for China's official narrative. So I think that's a, that's a pretty strong argument she makes. Yes. What I really appreciate about all the essays that we've put into this book is Dai Zhenghua's ability to contextualize the films in a broader social, political, and cultural context. Uh, she just does that beautifully, and she certainly does that with that film. And then Hero also you know, the famous director Zhang Yimou's uh, film Hero, um, she shows how he has rewritten the history of, of a very ancient story about the attempted assassination of uh, one of the first Chinese dynasties, the Qin dynasty, the king of the Qin. There were assassination attempts, and he. there have been many stories written about this, but Zhang Yimou's version is to, perversely again <laughs> enough, make the assassins come to respect the king's power and therefore put down their swords and stop their assassination attempts. And this rewriting of the story for Dai Jinhua symbolizes the way in which people today are being encouraged to have adulation for the person with power, the hegemon, the strong man. And again, that's very troublesome for her uh, because she wants people to be concerned about uh, what kind of world we're building and what kinds of power relations are ensuing and uh, developing a critique rather than an adulation. And I think that's a particularly uh, poignant thing to, to discuss at this at this very particular moment. I mean, I, I imagine this this book project was born even before the very most recent develops uh, developments in uh, you know in China um, as regards uh, adulation of certain figures. So uh, I, I think that's an incredibly um, yeah. She's she's really zooming in on something especially uh, especially important there. Um, and I love the way that she she outlines the 
uh, a place that this word tianxia, the, the idea of all under heaven or this kind of old idea um, notion, which is applied to various things, um, a term which has survived remarkably unscathed, she highlights throughout many, many uh, centuries and indeed millennia, but which now seems to be through film portrayals like uh, Zhang Yimou's, um kind of associated with uh, with the power of the hegemon and the conqueror uh, and not and not the not the masses if you like um it's a, it's a pretty it's a powerful and uh, and yeah and, and, and incisive point that she makes um well and a point i learned about recent chinese history in that discussion of tianxia if i could just add is that it was a term used during the cultural revolution which i hadn't realized to signal socialist internationalism so tianxia you know of course before the era of nation states did signal a kind of uh sense of all under heaven, meaning a, a more, um, you know, uh, without boundaries kind of connections. There were, of course, lots of divisions in earlier periods, but um, this was now been, as she says, evacuated of that sense of um, a, connect, a kind of universalizing connections and instead has been narrowed down to this, yes, the the, the symbol of the king who represents or the hegemon who represents um the powerful mm, mm. and that again is the, the strength of it i mean in a sense the, the narrative she's fighting against is one which seeks to muddy the water seeks to blur a lot of i guess elements of classical chinese history with select parts of more recent chinese history to to provide this kind of this pastiche that is uh, as she critiques it evacuated of meaning but in her response you know she too is bringing to bear the the socialist past as you mentioned there the use of tianxia during that time as well as the deeper resonances so she's not shying away from sweeping over this entire you know really really drawing from this entire uh, much deeper broad sweep of history um in her in her response and that is what that's what makes it so powerful uh, in in many regards um but uh, part two uh, sees her move on to um a somewhat different uh kind of uh, pair of films uh, if you like uh the, the 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 title of this part class still lives and masculinity um draws us into a couple of films by uh, Jia Zhang uh that's a film known in, in in english at least as still life and Zhang Meng, uh, the uh, piano in a, a factory, I believe, is the, the uh, yeah the English name for that for that film, um, which she's a lot more a lot more positive about. Really, I think it's fair to say, um, particularly given that these two films focus on uh, China's subaltern classes, relatively rare uh, in that regard for big big films uh, in China today. Um, could you uh, describe sort of how uh, she? Uh, highlights or kind of evokes what she's discussing here these ahistorical histories and 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 uh the fate of of the subaltern classes under neoliberal capitalism how how her critiques of these films um uh, draw draw that out yes i like that you mentioned these are rather positive because yes dai jinhua tends to be in the you know um you know, law, uh, uh, wonderful wonderful vein in many ways of a critical theorist who tends to point out uh, you know, the kind of, um, not exactly negative, but, you know, to point out what gets left out and then some, yes, um, negative consequences about what's going on in the world. These are two filmmakers whom she praises. Um, and uh, again, she, she makes us realize that most films coming out of China these days 
are not looking at the people who are who have been marginalized um, and um, are not are having difficult lives under this uh, neoliberal dispensation or of let's just say China's entrance into global capitalism. She um, praises these two filmmakers because they're some of the few who actually talk about those people. So uh, Jia Zhangke's very famous still life uh, is a beautiful, beautiful, moving examination of displaced uh, people in China. Uh, those rural migrant workers that we hear about who move around just trying to survive and who have very difficult lives uh, on top of the uh, several million people who were displaced because of the building of the Three Gorges Dam. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful examination of the struggles that those people face and um you know, the uncertainties and the difficulties. And he also has great gender politics in this movie, I think, uh, because he has the conceit uh, this, that moves the story along of, on the one hand, a woman searching for her husband who's been absent in her life for a while. And on the other hand, a man searching for his wife who uh, fled from him uh, and that search is what is the conceit that gets the the, the story moving, and it's a just a beautiful, yeah. I I really uh, and and so Dai Jinghua's consideration of this is also she just uh, she's a great film critic. She picks up on details in the cinematography that I think is just so very interesting for example she mentions briefly what's playing on the television on the boat while people are talking to one another and it gets um or maybe i can't remember if the tv is on the boat or in an, another building but uh it's it's a show that's uh praising uh chinese uh leaders for having um struggled for many years to develop this three gorges dam project but the the point is that that program is kind of sidelined and put on the margins. And then the people who are usually marginalized and who are being marginalized by these modernization projects are in the foreground of the, of the scene. And I, I, I really love her ability to pick up on um, visual uh, details like that in her analyses. So her analyses are just an extraordinary combination of zooming in on those details and then moving out to broader considerations, both um, in terms of context and also theoretically, yeah, yeah. There's there's a moment too where she's uh, she's she highlights uh, it's it's a it's a fleeting moment itself as well. But there's a moment in a factory uh, sort of boardroom or a manager's office where uh, workers are arguing with the manager under a long row of portraits of uh, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. Uh, or, or Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. It's very, very sort of striking kind of thing. But again, the, the, the workers are in the foreground there, um, as you mentioned. Um, I just wonder if I could pick up on something you mentioned there about um, the gender politics um, and, and, and this focus on uh, the sort of former uh, protagonists, if you like, of the socialist era and, and the kind of working class who were, you know, if anything, the uh, the kind of focal point uh, of, of, of Chinese... Um, I guess how it's how national destiny was conceived to some extent during this latter twentieth century period. 
Um, how does this feed into uh, the way that gender politics have, has, have changed, the way that she sees uh, gender politics having transformed uh, in, in more uh, recent times, uh, the, the, the kind of um, reassertion, if you like, of a different version of masculinity? Uh, one thing that she, we talk about in the interview I did with her is, um, and one can see it, of course, this uh, directly after the Cultural Revolution, this hyper-masculinization of um, social life in China and how men somehow had been emasculated, presumably, by the Cultural Revolution and needed to refine their masculinity. And also, at the same time, she she makes this really important comment that um, the critique of the uh, era of uh, economic reform where these transformations began, the critique kept focusing on uh, trying to turn the enormous transformations into what she calls small problems by claiming that it was just women's problems. You know, because a lot of women initially were being laid off, although later a lot of men too, but initially mostly women. And so the displacement of a critique of what was happening to working people by um, talking about it as just women's issues and women should go back in the home. And there was a lot of uh, talk about women um, shouldn't be, you know, uh, doing this, that, or the other thing. And um, so she... Uh, really has a very clear um, vision of that uh, through these essays about the ways in which critiques of the kinds of inequalities that are being produced uh, with China's entrance into global capitalism, um, how they get displaced onto these discussions about gender. On the other hand, this still life film, I think, is um, a wonderful uh, also the filmmaker, Jia Zhangke, is also making that same critique that these seemingly little issues of interpersonal relations, of couples being um, apart for different reasons, uh, is also really at the heart of what we want to uh, pay attention to uh, with these um some of them terrible, terrible transformations. These li people's lives are so insecure and you see buildings being destroyed as they um, are almost standing in them, being torn down, demolished. And um, also because it's become an abandoned uh, area that there's a lot of gang violence. And um, so she really picks up again on the details of that film to show how Jajanka makes us uh, enter into the kind of uh, structure of feeling, as it were, of the protagonists in the film to imagine, you know, get us to imagine what it must be like living as a insecure migrant worker. Right, right. China. No, exactly. And that's the, that's the sort of uh, re salvaging of the focus on the on the masses, if you like, on the on the uh, the, the broad sweep of humanity that uh, again was supposed to be the kind of main uh, drivers of history in the socialist period and and now of course are being kind of tossed uh, on the waves of uh, all kinds of forces that that, that yeah, leaves leaves many of them 
um, dispossessed and displaced. Um, and, and, and similar themes, I, I should say, we perhaps won't have time to, to dig into it now, but um, the, uh, the, yeah, the second film uh, discussed in this second part, uh, the uh, Zhang Meng film, uh, also deals with, with some similar themes and some of these the, the, the layoffs and, uh, and the impact on, on, on family relationships and so on. But I'll, I'll perhaps leave listeners to, uh, to pick the book up and, uh, and, and dig into that themselves uh, as we move on to the third part uh, of, the, of the book, which um, really, yeah, fascinatingly deals with uh, spy films and the, the spy genre, as the part is called. Um, what, what is it that's so distinctive and specific uh, about, about spy films? And why do you think Dai Jinhua dis- decides to, um, to write about these films in particular as, uh, as being particularly revealing of uh, the arguments she's making? Well, again, her touchstone, her starting point is thinking about how history is being evacuated, how um, memories are being evacuated, how history is being rewritten. And the spy film genre uh, strikes her as being a very important place for analyzing these questions. And that's because during the actual Cold War, the spy films uh, were actually... Uh, much clearer in a way about uh, the stakes involved and um, who, you know, questions about allies and enemies, friends and enemies. And now she's arguing the spy film genre has been uh, reinvigorated in China, but it has a completely different uh, texture to it in the sense that um, rather than highlighting heroes and villains, the characters seem to be uh, rather uncertain of, of their identities. So you get a lot of, um, uh, let's say, people moving uh, positions, which is particularly clear in the Lust Caution film um, and the discussions of it in China. Uh, Lust Caution, of course, was made by the famous Ang Li or Li Ang, and um, who, uh, at least U.S.-based, I think, um, film goers are probably familiar with some of his more famous films like Brokeback Mountain. He made this film, Lust Caution, about um, the attempt of patriotic young people to uh, assassinate the Chinese uh, person who was uh, the puppet willing to be head of the puppet government for the Japanese, and um, or at least in Shanghai, not the whole country, but in Shanghai. And But the story is really about this young woman who kind of uh, changes her position as she comes to actually care for this person whom she is supposed to seduce in order to get him assassinated. And that kind of switching around, you know, Dai Jinhua, first of all, talks about the evacuation of history in the sense that these young people in the film are portrayed very vaguely as all patriotic, and so that the history of the incredibly um, difficult struggles between the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party uh, is evacuated you know, the CCP and the KMT, uh, or Kuomintang, um, that whole history gets evacuated in this film. So we just have these 
vaguely patriotic young people and they don't have any other affiliations. So all of that is gets erased. Uh, so that's a one thing. And then also you get, once again, this uh, going back to the early film about the human, you get this young woman who just wants to be a good human being and uh, can't bring herself in the end. I don't know if I should say the spoiler or not, but can't bring herself to do what she has been assigned to do. And um, that, once again, uh, brings out some idea of a universal human that, again, evacuates the memories of what the struggles were actually about under Japanese colonial rule. Right, right. And and this, this sort of uh, point that she's making about, I guess, a, a very recent um, film concerned with uh, spy activities and so on is made all the stronger by her tracing of the kind of uh, deeper inheritance of, of spy film uh, spy films made, uh, which she points out in, in a very interesting way, transcends sort of both time and space in that they were quite popular sorts of films on both sides of the Cold War divide, as well as in China, this sort of third space, as you, uh, as you mentioned, um, and also have, have endured, albeit with a couple of kind of interruptions in China from the socialist period to the present. Um, and, a, and a particularly intriguing dimension of this is, is the way, again, to allude back to something we mentioned earlier, but the way that gender politics shifts uh, in, in the relationships um, that are present there in the in the spy films and the way that uh, the, the, the gaze is seen to operate, the way that the tension exists between having a sort of single, often male hero as the spy uh, or the or the double agent or whoever, um, and and the kind of femme fatale or the, the women he meets along the way. She actually provides some really uh, kind of um, uh, brilliant critique of James Bond films as well, which uh, I guess, uh, given my origins, I, I uh, uh, was was uh, sort of particularly interested in. But um, what? How, how about this uh, sort of uh, shifting gender configuration that that operates as as spy films in China have have transformed over time what, what how has this changed yes so the, the the interesting thing of course about a femme fatale is she's often you know she's often very powerful uh she 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 moves the plot along and she takes action and uh whether or not she succeeds in the end but she's a powerful presence and is uh, uh an important match let's say for the male hero in terms of, you know, tr trying to outwit one another. But whereas in Lust Caution, the woman, uh, as I say, becomes quite, uh, not exactly passive, but m more um, a victim of her own emotions and is more of the, what we would think of as a conventional portrait of a romantic uh, vision of a young woman in many Hollywood movies. You know, so she just gives in to her emotions as opposed to, so she's not the femme fatale. She's the opposite. In fact, the whole point of the movie is that she cannot fulfill the role of the femme fatale. So things have moved around in terms of the capacities and the, and the sort of um, uh, power balance. Yes. And the, so it, yes, and it feeds into uh, which Dai is concerned with, it feeds into a kind of naturalization of certain kinds of femininity that, 
that are so opposed to what Dai Jinghua herself came of age with when women were taught to be very strong and take action and uh, take charge of their lives. And this film portrays what is a very popular vision of women today in China uh, and gender roles um, about a woman who cannot, as I said, overcome the weakness of her emotions. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it, in a sense, it, it, yeah, it brings us back to, to the very uh, early, the early discussion we had there of her sort of desire for a, um, an elevated level of feminine consciousness rather than uh, the, yeah, the rights discussion or anything like that. It's, it's, it's as much to do with being just able to do all these things. It's not, it's not some sort of, um, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a campaign for rights, as we were mentioning. It's, it's, it's a, a return, perhaps, to the idea that what, why not? You know, why can't women just do these, these things that, that uh, they were uh, generally encouraged to do in the, in the socialist period? Um, but uh, we'll, we'll perhaps uh, move on to the, the, the finale, this, this final section of the book, which I guess draws a lot of the strands together, uh, history, memory, and the politics of representation, uh, as it's called. Um, she, uh, again, brings up many of the themes we've already discussed here, including the focus of recent Chinese films or films popular in China uh, on powerful men and, and this kind of effacing of the of the place of, of ordinary people. Um, but in, and, in, and in particular, she dissects the Chinese word for history, li shi, uh, into li and shi, and the idea that li gestures at a uh, personal experience and shi is this more grand historical narrative. Um, and I thought that was really, uh, really smart, the way that she she kind of uh, brings that out because it is actually a, a focus on individual experience that has led to a lot of the erasure of uh, of, of of other kinds of history. Um, so, uh, what 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 what, what uh, is she sort of saying here about the relationship between history and memory, and uh, what is her sort of outlook uh, in this in this final section of the book? Well, as we said uh, before. Uh, Dai Jinhua is uh, being the cultural critic um, throughout in the sense that uh, while she calls passionately for a sense that we need to uh, recover these histories that are being erased and we need to have a sense, especially of the kind of hope, even she uses the word utopia sometimes, a utopian uh, desire to search for a better world. That's what she wants people to embrace. While she's emphasizing that, at the same time, she's also pointing out what she calls the vacuum of self-consciousness and values. And it's that vacuum that she really, uh, yes, as you say, brings together the themes of the book, and she talks about this vacuum um, through um, uh, how people end up reducing uh, what should be uh, emphasis on the structural conditions of history into just individualist stories, whether you're talking about the last emperor of China or um, uh, most of the other films, Farewell, My Concubine, so on and so on, um, that these are then you don't get a sense of all at all of a historical context or anything else happening in the person's life except for um, 
their individual emotional responses. And um, this she talks about in relation, uh, as I say, to a number of films, Assembly is one of them, and um, that um, what she talks about, the blank slate of the individual, of the I, so that you can try to remake yourself into the kind of person who's going to fit ultimately into this um, global capitalist moment. And so there's this combination here of, uh, yeah, critical, searingly critical uh, commentary along with, again, pushing us to not let go of, I mean, to recover a history where we can once again start to hope for a better world. Right, exactly. And that kind of brings us full circle, in a sense, back to this uh, the idea that um, China's uh, experience and reflections on its past are, are tank- now so entangled with uh, a version of a, a sort of Western or a, a kind of neoliberal vision of history that uh, that makes it very difficult to uh, to, to see uh, the the kind of particularities um, beyond the yeah the, the the microscopic sort of individual uh, thing that ends up erasing a lot of the um, important aspects that she's she's trying to draw out. But it's a it is as you say a pretty forceful and uh, really searing. Uh, call to arms, if you like, for for uh, you know um, uh, looking for something else. Uh, and I think, uh, uh, well, thank you very much for for having uh, brought it all out for us uh, today. Um, I should say too, uh, as as we've alluded to a couple of times, there's an interview of yours there at the end of the book, which provides a bit more um, context of her experience during the Cultural Revolution and the development of her sort of uh, positionality. Uh, uh, in, in relation to feminism and, and, and views of history and so on. And there's also a bibliography of her work uh, in, included at the end of the book, which uh, I think drives home just how extraordinarily prolific she is. And uh, I think will provide a very good resource for anyone looking to delve into her um, her back catalogue uh, more deeply. Um, but in any case, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for uh, appearing. Uh, we've taken up a good amount of your time today. Um, but uh, perhaps before we go... Um, I can ask a, a version of the New Books Network final question, uh, namely, what is it that, uh, well, either you or, or indeed Dai Jinhua is working on currently, what do you know of her her current projects uh, in this uh, yeah, extraordinarily active mode that she uh, inhabits? Well, I had the good fortune to talk to her a lot about her new project because uh, she came, as I said, to the United States. We did a book tour for this book after the post-Cold War, and then ended up in at the uh, Association for Asian Studies meetings uh, where we did a panel on the book. So in between all those um, things, we, we talked quite a bit. Dai Jinghua um, has actually come back to gender in a more direct way. Uh, she's uh, fascinated by um, these online novels that are a Chinese version of... Uh, uh, what was uh, popular, uh, still is popular, but started off earlier in Japan, which is some people translated as BL, you know, boy love. But basically, it's a um, genre in which um, straight women uh, admire uh, gay men in film or otherwise. And But what's happening online in China is that these 
very young women are writing online novels about gay, um, or I, we don't you have to use the word gay, but just uh, homoerotic relationships between men. And um, she she's fascinated about why that is, and again, being Daijiwa, she doesn't. She both she of course analyzes the gender aspect, but again, she also analyzes the um, implications uh, these novels have for thinking about history um, and uh, power, as well as uh, gender uh, relations. So uh, she's writing a series of essays about this. I'm hoping we can, um, as I said before eventually turn them into a book. I don't think she's published any of them yet, or either in Chinese, maybe in Chinese she has, but not, not in English. Oh, well, fantastic. I mean, I hope, uh, I hope as, as you suggest that this does, uh, yeah, become something, uh, something uh, resembling uh, the current book we've been discussing in, in terms of its, uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess, contribution towards our understandings of, of China, because it seems uh, incredibly important. Um, so that sounds uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, but uh, well, thank you so much, Lisa. I really wanted to, uh, to yeah, to uh, thank you again for appearing on the show today. It's been great talking to you. Mm. Thank you. And listeners, thank you too for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and we'll be back with you very soon. Goodbye.